Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, Chris Evans here with this week's edition of the Best of the Breakfast Show podcast with Sky from Virgin Radio. Coming up, fabulous physicist Professor Brian Cox blows our tiny minds with his huge brain with news of his Horizons, a 21st century space odyssey tour, plus his brand new BBC series Universe, which is off the charts mind-melting. Beloved super vet Noel Fitzpatrick turns the pages of his first children's novel, Vetman and his bionic animal clan, Daring Design. And TV presenter Kevin McLeod gives us serious house envy with details of series 22 of Grand Design's House of the Year. And legendary footballer John Barnes lifts the lid on his eight years in the works book, The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism, from wherever you get your books now. All of that and so much more to come, so let's get right to it. His brain frequently explores the universe, and next year he'll be exploring the UK. Tickets are on sale now for his Horizons, a 21st century space odyssey tour. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the collection of sentient atoms that goes by the name of Professor Brian Cox. Good morning, Brian. Oh, I was just going to say, I was just correcting you. It's not the atoms that are sentient, it's the collection of atoms. That's what's remarkable about us, the collections of atoms that can think and feel and bring meaning to the universe. Dave, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I stole, I think I stole that off you, Brian. <laughs> Did you? Oh, well, I, well, you know, sometimes I, you, you played things can only get better. That's incorrect as well. <laughs> I mean, it, it, so I do make mistakes. And that was... You know, the universe actually gets worse over time, um, over vast timescales. And we think that in, what well, the last star will cease to shine in 10 trillion years. So I think, therefore, saying that things can only get better is inaccurate. How do we know that that's going to happen? How do you and your gang know that the final sun, way, way after ours has fizzled out, that's going to that's going to fade away and die, and that's it for all suns and all stars in our known universe in 10 trillion years? How do you know that? So we, we know how stars work. And the basic rule is the smaller it is, the longer it lasts because the really big ones have to burn lots of fuel in order to resist the inward pull of their own gravity. And so it's the little faint ones that are at low temperature and minding their own business that last for the longest. And that, that's actually, it's, it's the physics we knew since the 1930s about how stars work. So it's just, that's it really. You need a little, tiny, little dim star to last a long time, which is aspects like show business. <laughs> He's on fire this morning. Yeah, but the point is, you you are right. It's, you know, it's all about staying power, isn't it? You know, and and stamina and ultra running. You know, sounds impressive, but it's actually easier and more sustainable um, than not running as far as one might otherwise. So, for for the polar opposite of uh, uh, white dwarfs, let's talk talk about red dwarfs now. Well, it's actually the so white dwarfs. That's what the sun's going to turn into. Right. So it's going to collapse into a star the size of a planet. Mm which is a white dwarf. The red dwarfs are these little things that just carry on burning in a very dim and last for a long time. The biggest stars, which are the most interesting, so they live for a very short space of time, just a few million years, some of them, and then explode and collapse into a black hole. And black holes are, I think, the most interesting things in the universe at the moment. I'm going to talk about those for about half my live shows. It would be all my live show if it's up to me, actually, but I I've got to talk about something else. All right, so you're back. You are touring, and people love it when you uh, tour arenas, theatres, stadiums, horizons, a 21st century space odyssey tour. Tickets available now at briancoxlive.co.uk. Um, I love the new series, Brian. I absolutely loved it. I was captivated by it. I was engaged with it. One of the great things about doing this show is that I have to watch things. I have no choice, and that's not because I wouldn't want to otherwise. It's just that I wouldn't make time, but I have to. And I watch your show as a result of um, preparing for this interview, and it was just 
absolutely wonderful. As I say, reassuringly mild, mild, uh, mind-melting, as always, when it comes to, to, to you and your groove. Is it fair to say that the superstar, maybe not the most important um, uh, piece of technology created to, to help with space endeavour, but the superstar, the rock star of all those things would be uh, uh, and remains the Hubble telescope? Uh, yeah, until until about a month's time, because the replacement has been launched. It's called the Webb Telescope. And this telescope is going to be able to look so far out into space, which means it's looking so far back in time, that it will see the first stars and galaxies form, which is going to be beautiful, because we don't fully understand that. But also, fascinatingly, it's going to be able to look into the atmospheres of planets around other stars. And so we're going to be able to look for signs of life, for example, on planets beyond our solar system, which is just a remarkable thing. Yeah, and you do sort of speak to um, extra galactic missions, yeah. challenges, endeavours, which we have sort of now sort of spied. We've espied, haven't we, little chinks of uh, the possibility of those being those existing. Yeah, we, we've seen evidence of a planet. In, in another galaxy. And can you imagine that? You know, I mean, our galaxy itself, the Milky Way, this is the thing about astronomy, it's huge numbers, 400 billion suns in our island of stars. It takes light 100,000 years to cross it. And we found thousands of planets there. But if you go to the next galaxy, then you're talking about a 2 million light years, right? So light taking 2 million years to cross that vast expanse of space, but we've begun to detect planets in those galaxies. And it's just, I, I think it's, it's stunning. I mean, the universe, I say at the start of the show, actually, that the, the astronomy is, is terrifying. It really, in, in the literal sense, I think, in the moment you think about these things, I think that even professional astronomers are terrified and don't know what to make of the size and scale of the universe. That's what makes it interesting. And I gave the, um, I was asked, it was a great honour, actually, I was asked to give the intro to the COP26 um, meeting a couple of weeks ago. And they, they said to me, what would you, what do you want to say to the world leaders? And, and I said, well, it's possible that this planet is the only place where intelligence, really complex life exists in our galaxy. So, and you are responsible for it. So imagine that that's true. It might be. And imagine that through inaction or deliberate action, pressing the nuclear button or whatever it is, you people destroy it. Then you might be responsible for eliminating intelligence and meaning from a galaxy. And that was my thought that I... Now, I, no one told me what they made of it, but they listened to it. <laughs> That's what they had to listen to at the start. So I thought, it, this is the thing about astronomy. It gives you perspective. And so it's not just about you know, stuff that we don't need to know, thinking about these little points of light in the sky and motes of dust orbiting around them. It tells us about what it means to be human. It's an important part of, of how we think about ourselves. Are you a fan of Elon Musk? I'm guessing you are because, you know, he says he wants to to land um, a human being on, or land life on Mars by 2024. That deadline's uh, growing ever closer. But also, um, he truly believes that we have to become a multi-planet species. He's not going to be on Mars by 2024, by the way. If, if he is, right, I'll, I'll come back on the show and I will eat whatever it is where you eat your hat. He's not going to land on Mars by 2024. But what he has done is he's revolutionized space travel because the rockets, we've all seen those videos of them coming back to Earth again. That's a revolution. It means that it's a lot cheaper to get into space. And, you know, I think sometimes we present Elon Musk and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. We see the space tourism bit of what they're doing. And, you know, you can legitimately criticize that and say, should, should billionaires be flying around in space for fun? But actually, what if you think about what space does for us now, so what we know about climate change, a lot of it comes from satellites observing the surface of the Earth. Weather forecasts, which are not just will it rain tomorrow, but is there really violent weather coming and big, huge tropical storms and things. So these are life-threatening events. All that stuff comes from space. Communications, satellite navigation. I saw someone on Twitter the other day saying, say, say why do we need, I don't need satellite navigation, I've got my phone which is missing <laughs> horrendously. You know? Completely. 
SatNav, yeah. <laughs> SatNav obviously involves satellites. So the, we, we take it for granted. And I think the real value of what Elon Musk has done, which is brilliant, is build these reusable rockets. Have you met him? I have. I met him briefly once. I was supposed to be interviewing him um, for a TV series. And he said, um, I don't want to be interviewed. I don't want to be on camera. I don't want it recorded, but we can meet. <laughs> so I did. So I went and met him, but it was, of course, no use at all for the TV series because he wouldn't let it be filmed. What, what did you sense of him? He's unusual, but I suppose, obviously, he's one of the most successful people in the world. So he's, he's passionate about spaceflight, and he really believes that he really believes that we're valuable, which we've talked about. And he believes that ultimately all our eggs are in one basket here on Earth, and we're much more likely to survive if we can move out to Mars and beyond. And he, he's right. So he's a passionate individual. Um, but he's, uh, yeah, he's everything. I think if, if you have an opinion, a picture of Elon, then he, that's probably right. He's everything <laughs> that you think he is. OK. Uh, Brian, it's lovely to talk to you again. It's been a long, long time, too long. Horizons of 21st Century Space Odyssey, the tour uh, tickets available now, uh, briancoxlive.co.uk. And um, thanks for being on the show, Brian. Have a great day and come and see us in person as soon as you can, pal. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. All right, here we talk to you next. Dabba Dave, it's over to you. He can famously save your pet's life and now he can keep your kids quiet whilst he does it. His children's book, Vet Man and his bionic animal clan is out now. So ladies and gentlemen, listen up as we tete-a-tete with the super vet. It's the wild animal that is Noel Fitzpatrick. Oh, I know. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are you, pal? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thanks Great so much. to be here with you in the studio. Great to see you here. And so if you've never met Noel before no I haven't nice to meet you Noel uh, nice yeah. to meet you, you Sophia it was lovely to see the light come on in her eyes she got a personalised copy of Vetman as I came <laughs> in it was great there's a, there's a 10 year old in everybody <laughs> right so Noel Fitzpatrick Vetman and his Bionic Animal Clan is out now he's shot straight to number one in Amazon's Movers and Shakers a couple of weeks ago now um, it's a cracking read for so many different reasons um, Vetman um, which came first uh, the Bionic Vet the Super Vet or Vetman, no. <laughs> oh, Vetman came miles before any of those others. He was in my head since I was 10. Well, he was you, wasn't he? He is me. He I mean, is there's, more than, there's more than a passing resemblance on the front of the book I for know. those that haven't <laughs> noticed <laughs> that the artist did a reasonable job. Now, he's been my guardian angel. He's been the guardian angel of, of all the animals and of me. You know, when I was having a tough time, I just thought, I, dre- I dreamt up a superhero that would protect me and save all the animals, and he became Vetman. And it's so funny Chris you know you ask which came first and I was just talking to Dapper Dave in the elevator coming up and, and we were talking about life you don't get to do Vetman until you do all the other stuff first you don't get to share Vetman with the world until you do the Bionic Vet and you do Super Vet and you, you get enough shows and then I, I, I went to the publisher actually with Vetman and I said oh look I've got this superhero in my head and he's going he's gonna to go out in the world he's going to save all the animals and save humanity from itself no 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 we don't want that uh, but we might want you to write a book about, you know, being the super vet. And I found, well, if I do that, can I have that? Well, no, no, no. We would like you to write another book about being the super vet. Well, after that, can I get the new vet? Yes. <laughs> so that's, those are the hoops. That's where we are. That's just how it rolls. That's the way it goes. Fantastic. But the but, most important thing I've ever done by a mile. Okay. And also, um, the easiest when you wrote it, but of course, um, you know, it's it's decades in the making. And that's why I suppose it, you, felt, you felt it was easier. There was less friction. There was less um, sort of conscious effort seemingly involved. And I'm not, by the way, these are your words, not mine. Yeah, well, I I was in the the car on the way home with lovely David who dro- drove me and picked me up. And it's really tired and allows me to sleep on his back seat. <laughs> and I was listening to your little extract uh, about Louis Theroux uh, talking about his child yeah. uh, wanting to stay five. And I think there's a little bit of all of us that would love to stay five. I am still five. Uh, you are a little bit. And in this book, I get to be five. Every day I wrote it. So I would sit down. We only got the commission in April and I had to deliver it by September. So every Friday and Saturday night, I made a deal with myself after work. I was laughing my head off when I heard, oh, we're going to go to the pub at four o'clock. I'm like, mate, I'm cutting my third case at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, but you're <laughs> you don't have a million children. <laughs> no, 
Oh, Either. that's right. It's Tashi's break, that, not mine. I know. I merely go to support her to the pub. I don't really uh, want to go. Of course, of course. No crisps <laughs> for me. Thank you very much. Anyway, the point I was making is that to do... Um, I was thinking about the child, you know, the child that wants to be great, you know. And, and there's a little line in the book that is, you are whoever you want to become. And I think about the child that wants to be a concert pianist or the child that wants to be an Olympian. And the thing I wanted to do in the book was, well, three things, really. One, I didn't want to be patronising to kids. I wanted to deal with real emotions, grief, pain, love, loss, the whole nine yards and being the greatest you can be. Secondly, I wanted them to find refuge, you know, for their fears and, and, and the stuff that is difficult for people. And thirdly, I wanted to bring them hope. You know, it needs to be entertaining. It needs to be a joyous ride of, yes, we can save the world. There's so much doom and gloom. But to come back to your original question, yes, feeling five to ten years old every Friday and Saturday night was a beautiful catharsis, a beautiful miracle for me. I was going to say, it would re-energise you, wouldn't it? Uh, By the way, with a different energy, not just uh, more, but different. Well, I think it's changed my life because it's made me re-evaluate why I do what I do. I don't, I don't think, you know, I, I was joking, bantering with you there about, you know, working and stuff. That's not it. We are bigger than that. There is something inside us, everyone, and I mean everyone, that is incredibly unique and special. And the moments we touch it, the moments we, we feel really alive. And when I was writing this book and journeying with Imogen and Finley, the two little children that discover a broken hedgehog and bring him to see Vetman and Vetman's like me in the mornings grumpy and with a pyjama smock and he scares them and an alligator appears behind oh my goodness it really is an alligator with a titanium tail and so the story goes but the moments we come alive are the moments that we feel that energy that we had of what Louis Theroux was referring to as total freedom when everything is possible Nothing is impossible and we don't complicate it. Later this morning you were talking about Walt and Boo kneeling down to watch TV, touching the ground. I've never felt more alive in my entire life for 43 years since Vetman came in my head than when I've been writing him. And, and I just wish and hope that there's somebody somewhere, some 10-year-old or the 10-year-old inside an 80-year-old somewhere that picks it up. And a lady came into my practice the other day and she was reading it. She's 82. And she said, she was like near tears. And I said, what was it? And she said, well, I felt eight. And that is, I think, what uh, society tries to homogenize out of us. Politics tries to homogenize out of us. The things that we demand on Instagram and Twitter and everything else homogenize out of us. But being really you is when you're seven. And that's what I love about Vetman. He's really himself. And he's the greatest I could ever become. So there you go. No Fitzpatrick Vetman and his manic animal clan is out now. It's book one of um, 2022 books. <laughs> <laughs> no. no. It's so the it's biggest book... publishing deal ever. <laughs> it's it's going to make Harry Potter seem like a limerick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Hachette, thank you very much for allowing this to happen. This is book one. All right. You're awesome. Thank you, Noel. Thank you so much, Chris. Love you, Noel. Love you. Love you, everybody. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. After over 20 years of poking around people's houses, our next guest knows a thing or two about what makes a decent gaff. The sixth series of Grand Design's House of the Year starts tomorrow night at 9pm on Channel 4, and after a thorough inspection, we can confirm he's architecturally sound. It's the one and only Kevin McLeod! First of all, how are you, my friend? I'm well, how are you? All right. Right, so House of the Year, it's not a one-off. It's not like some kind of, you know, uh, live Channel 4 special. It's, it's its own little mini-series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Grand Designs I've been doing for 20 years. House of the Year we've been doing for 15. And it's, I love it because, uh, you know, Grand Designs, I spend my time wearing a hard hat, standing in mud, getting freezing cold all through the year. Um, and, um, and, and House of the Year is the exact opposite. I get to put posh shoes on and I can go around people's houses and have a good proper nose. It's great. I mean, I think it's a sort of British sort of national um, hobby, really, isn't it? Kind of, you know, peeking through the curtains. And I had people texting me last year saying, you know, where's House of the Year? Why can't I watch it? I need to, I need my dose. Um, so long list into shortlist into finalists. Um, what's the process? Who's involved? Is it fun? Is, is there wine involved? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why, why would there never be? Yeah, um, exactly, yeah. I, listen, I gather, I gather, I gather you got set a copy of the first episode which goes out tomorrow night yes. but they chopped the end off it because they didn't want you to know who the 
shortlisted finalists were. Yeah, know, but I've now got them written down in front of me, so I don't really understand the 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 thinking behind that. But I don't mind at all. I quite like it, to be honest. Well, I know it's okay. I mean, I've worked for the same television production company, Fremantle, for twenty five years, yes. and they haven't yet given me an email. They think, I mean, they I think they treat us all like children. Yeah, well, it's good. Pro- 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 probably best, I would imagine. Now, Vassus was particularly taken with the first episode, as was I, after his recommendation this year. Um, do you remember that house, episode one? It was an absolute classic. What, what a, what a programme, what an hour to kick off a brand new season 22, by the way, of Grand Designs. Yeah, yeah, no, it was, I mean, it was a pretty epic series all round. And, um, and, you know, we went from kind of ridiculous, from, you know, one huge extremity, and it was, it was a sort of proboscis of a building. Um, uh, stuck on top of a hill, you know, costing millions of pounds to the following week, a little triangular house costing 250,000 pounds, which was, if anything, just, if not even more beautiful. And I, I love that. I love the small, you know, uh, the, the small stuff, which is, which is really big on design ambition. And, you know, and, and that, that's where you get proper, that's a proper grand design. Do you know what I mean? Anybody can, anybody can write a check. Anybody can spend lots of money on something. Um, not, not anybody, because you need lots of money in the first place. But my point is, is that great architecture doesn't require great budgets. No, you're absolutely right. It just uh, requires great imagination. One of yeah. our favourite housing websites, and we, we love a bit of house porn on the show, and we're all big fans of houses. And again, regardless, you know, whether it's a tree house or whether it's uh, something more palatial or something, something Iron Man-esque, but our favourite house website is The Modern House, which I'm sure you must be aware of. Yeah, yeah. Well, my, I don't know if I can say this, but my daughter works for them. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I know them very well. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great, great website. And, it, you know, they came about as, a, as an estate agency, but they've, they do loads of editorial now. You know, loads of loads of stories, loads of buildings. Yeah, and it's, it's quite a few quite a few sites like that. We should say that, shouldn't we? Yeah, no, absolutely. And amazing photography. Um, and they've got a new book out, the the Modern House People. But you know. What, what I look at modern the Modern House website, and I've been a fan for years and years and years, and, you know, they've really worked hard, and it looks like something you, you could sort of imagine here overnight, but that's just not the way um, um, great companies work. You know, especially with the websites and all this kind of stuff, you can't sort of parachute in that kind of elegance. They talk about physics, don't they? It's, you know, elegant theories. Well, you have ele- When you see elegance within something, this, that's often pinned with with passion you know compassion empathy and and you know you know burning the candle at both ends and, and just putting those hours in and i look at those those houses and I look at the house on your show and i think okay grand design but do they work as houses you know and i think that's really important too and how important is that when you come up with a winner for house of the year or is it is it all about the aesthetics you know i know the functionality is often you talk about it a lot and you you love it when things work as well as they look but how important is that honestly at the end of the day when you're judging this competition yeah, yeah. I like what you're saying, Chris. Look, I mean, um, I, I, I think uh, the thing about telly is that it loves a good image and it loves a good moving image, you know, and it loves a bit of wavy fronds of foreground lavender and a beautiful sky and the building beyond, you know, and it's a sort of dream in a way. Yeah. It's lovely. But of course, buildings have to work and they have to work functionally. They have to look after us, but they also have to be, they have to lift the soul, don't they? They have to lift the spirits. And, and, um, and if anything, you know, the job of Michelle, myself and Damien, or presenting it is is to um, is to try and convey the experience of being in a building. You know what it does to you because all architecture does is remake the world in a way that's a little bit more comfortable and a bit more beautiful for us. Wow. It's for us to enjoy. And and I say to people, you know, look, don't just watch television, don't just look at the websites, but try and get out and visit buildings, visit great homes if you can. Yeah. You know, on um, there are several architecture open days. Local authorities have them, but the the RIBA runs one as well, and and you can you can get out and you can visit people's homes, and it's it's so exciting. Oh, that's you know, interesting. Because I know you can yeah. open up your gardens, can't you? Yeah, yeah, it's the equivalent of that. Yeah, yeah. Open, it's called open house. Yeah, wow. in London, and I love you know it. you can just get around and visit. You know when it's going on because there are just queues of people standing outside a house in a street somewhere. <laughs> All right, well, um, uh, poetically uh, put and perfectly pitched. There you go. Proper house eye candy. Uh, Kevin, uh, wonderful. Uh, so that's just going to finish just before Christmas, I would imagine, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, mate. And um, what are you doing for Christmas? Um, well, I've got, my, I've got my chest freezer full. I've got an industrial chest freezer. <laughs> I've done all my Christmas shopping. Thank you. I made my red Have cabbage Have you honestly? Night. Yes. 
Well, so we've got a home. Well, you're a bloke. House, <laughs> so we've got somebody in the house who's shielding. So we're kind of trying to do everything online. I've had to be kind of, to be military in our organisation. Right. Do you know what I mean this year? Well, Kevin, I've got I... enough for five Christmases. All right. Well, I love you and I miss you. And you, Chris. Yeah. All right, pal. Come and see us again Take soon. Take care, mate. Grand Designs has the year. One of the best programmes on the telly. Barn on starts tomorrow at 9pm, Channel 4. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. He's the Liverpool and England legend with more than a few iconic goals to his name. His new hard-hitting book, The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism, is out now. So please welcome a man that fights like a lion on the pitch and in prose. It's the legendary John Barnes. Good morning, John. Morning, guys. How are you doing? You okay? Very well. How are you today? I'm very good. I'm very good. All right. Football first. England, 10 goals last night. Did you watch the match? I mean, it was it was comfortable, wasn't it? It was to be expected because this England team now is... is <laughs> come on, it is, it is San Marino. What do you expect? I think we beat them six or seven when I played. And, and, and you know, so it, it was to be expected. But what this England team does is it maximises the potential. You yeah. don't get any surprises from them. They beat who they should beat. They get to the latter stages of competition. They can actually win competitions, but they're just... I would say they're probably the most consistent team in the world. Not to say that they're the best in the world, but the most consistent. We saw Italy draw with Northern Ireland, for example, last night, and they're the European champions. So you can't ask any more of Gareth and the team um, to do what they did. All right, from the most comfortable win uh, imaginable, uh, at least in my living memory, Samarino Neil, England 10, to your book, The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism. Now, I read this book yesterday, uh, John. It, I sensed the, the, the courage behind it. Did, it. did it take a lot of courage to write it or, 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 or what? It didn't take any courage at all. Um, it took a lot of introspection. It wasn't ghostwritten. I wrote it myself, which is why it's taken eight years, although I sent it to my daughter, and uh, who's much brighter than me, to, to do the spell checks and the paragraphs and make sure that everything is in order. But it was very introspective, and, and it's been going on for a long time. And I really decided to write it because, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the way that the world is going now in terms of what we think the solution to the problem is, and I think we're doing it in the wrong way. We're just looking to elevate more more black people into positions of power and feel that that's going to help um, the black working classes. And it's a very intersectional book. If you read it, you'll understand in terms of, you know, because we, we think the same thing about women and, and gay people. And, you know, look at the Me Too movement, which was started by Tarana Burke about, you know, sexual abuse for young black girls in the inner cities, which was then, in my opinion, hijacked by a group of Hollywood women. And of course, they do deserve support, don't get me wrong. But now it's about Harvey Weinstein, an elite group of people wanting more and using the, the average person as an excuse for them getting more. And of course... I think that that's what's happening. There are so many jumping off points in the book. Did you, was it always in this order, um, the, this, the, the direction of, of travel, of the story? Um, you know, and I think it's wonderful, the thought that's gone into it, you know, because you take us all over the world. You take us, you know, um, from past centuries uh, right up until now. Um, you talk about your childhood and landing here for the first time with your family at the age of 12. Yes, but of course, you know, ultimately, the essence of the book is that we all discriminate. And rather than point the finger at the ones who get caught, because we all assume because we wouldn't rub it on on the football field, um, sexually uh, assault a woman or, 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 or go and, and beat up a gay guy, we are not homophobic, racist or sexist in any, in any way, shape or form. But we all are to a certain degree. And until we own it and have a kind of truth and reconciliation that they had in Rwanda, whereby it's not just about the victims, it's about people being able to come forward and say, yes, I, I do discriminate because I have been wrongly told lies about different groups of people, be they black, be they women. So don't blame me. Blame the environment I was brought up in and let's challenge that environment rather than waiting for someone to get caught and just point the finger at him and cancelling or sex. We all have to look at ourselves as to do we really believe in equality? And the answer is no. But that's because of the way we have been conditioned to think, unconscious bias. So, you know, it's, 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 it's a very... We're trying to do it in a very simplistic way. And uh, you, there are many eye-opening, almost jaw-dropping stories in the book and examples of unconscious bias and even more obvious bias. Um, and one of the things uh, that struck me first off in the first third of the book was the fact that you make reference to the more successful a footballer you became, the less racism you experienced. Absolutely. The less overt racism I experienced. Because, of course, you are then accepted in the higher terms of society, notwithstanding a banana on the field or you know, racial abuse from an inconsequential fan um, who has no influence over systemic racism that affects black people in the inner cities in terms of jobs, education, housing. All it does is just hurt my feelings for half an hour on a football field. But then come Monday to Friday, I'm able to go to Downing Street. I can go on television. I can mix with the higher echelons of society. So what has been hard for me ever since I've been 17 because of the way I've been brought up in my family is capitalizing on certain aspects of blackness while not enduring everyday reality of the black experience, which means that black people, the average black person, go through this every day of their lives. And of course, we do have 
footballers and actors and singers who then, of course, they, they have, have racial bias directed towards them, but not 90% of the time. You know, so I would much rather work from the bottom up, trying to change the perception of the average black person, the average woman, the average gay person, rather than elevating an elite black person or woman or gay person out of the negative space where a black is, and then say, look, we're doing something and things are getting better because we have a black president, we have a female president, we have a, a, a gay person who is, you know, in the high echelons of society. And we've been doing that for hundreds of years. We have to be able to have these conversations because this is how we have been conditioned to think. And let's tackle the conditioning that we've all been under for for hundreds of years. Awesome, John. Uh, Thanks so much for your book. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks a lot, guys. All the best. You're very welcome. John Barnes, The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism is out now. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, so far we've heard from a bunch of sensational guests already, but still to come, the ray of light that is Giovanna Fletcher giving us the lowdown on her brand new story, her brand new novel, Walking on Sunshine, a lovely, inspiring, real-life tale of three pals triangulating off on a trek together, born out of the dreams and wishes of a loved one no longer here to do it herself. Extraordinary adventurer Rob Pope tells us his remarkable trip trekking story of recreating the greatest run in film history in his book Becoming Forest. He is the real Forrest Gump, a lovely bloke, fantastic book, awesome, epic adventure. The hilarious Geordie Chris Ramsey also joined us to talk about finally heading out on the road on his rescheduled 2020 tour and wine extraordinaire Ollie Smith giving us a lesson in mixology with a very early morning cocktail masterclass to go along with his soon-to-be-released home cocktail Bible. Who doesn't want one of those? So let's get right back to it. Dapper Dave, who's next? She's the undisputed queen of the jungle that's a dab hand at putting pen to paper. Her new novel, Walking on Sunshine, is out now. And, and here... that's all we've got time for. <laughs> 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 Guys, and here to tell us more is an author, a presenter, an actor, a podcaster, a reality TV star, a head shaker, all wrapped up in the wonderful Giovanna Fletcher. Yeah! <laughs> Hi. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. This is lovely, isn't it? It's nice Gorgeous. being back here. Oh, my goodness me. It's nice being back here. And you were so wonderfully generous with your time, your effort, your energy, uh, and your experiences at Carfest this year. Oh, Thank I you. I absolutely loved it. Literally, I stepped away from it. And it, so it's interesting because I think I did the Saturday and Tom did the Sunday. Day. I went away and I was like, that was the best day I've ever had at a festival. And then Tom did exactly the same thing on the Sunday when he came home. Oh. And then and then doing it down south again, we were literally, as we were leaving, we were like, can we come next year? Is that oh, no. okay? Oh, no. can, can we camp? Is there, we're not, never leaving? No, I'm afraid you can't. I know okay. you are, you are, you're already signed up. Because within, <laughs> because within Carfest, you get Starfest now. Starfest is getting bigger because people absolutely love um, your juice, your energy and, and all your friends and all the other people who stepped onto the Starfest stage. So you are signed up for um, next year, North and South? North and South, yeah. All right. Um, well, here comes the book, A Walk In on Sunshine, Giovanna Fletcher, Three Friends, One Trip of a Lifetime. So I've had the elevator pitch from a reader <laughs> oh. on your behalf, <laughs> on the air, at Rachel Horn, Rainbow. Give us the author's elevator pitch. <laughs> You've already done this. Yeah, well, you go ahead. I okay. want to hear your version. Um, so, three friends, Mike, Zaza and Vicky, um, they're all at very different stages in their lives. Um, Zaza, you'd think it was, a, it was a good time. She's just got engaged and, you know, you've seen all, she's seen all of her friends. That's happened to them. That's where she thinks she's heading. That's where she, what she thinks she wants. But actually, she's there and she's suddenly gone, well, hold on, what about all the first, the first dates, all that first fun thing, those fun, first fun things that happen? Is this it? You know, I'm with one person now for the rest of my life. Uh, and then you've got Vicky, who used to be a TV producer working daytime. 
lovely life, uh, you know, here, there and everywhere. Now she's a mum of two. Uh, she is constantly struggling with putting shoes and socks on, with, you know, dodging fish pies it's thrown at her. Uh, and she's just... You know, she puts herself at the bottom of every single to-do list. She is buried under the mother load and she's left feeling, is this it? <laughs> the real mother load. The real mother load. Uh, and then you've got Mike, who um, was married to Pia, who they were all best friends with. They all lived together in uh, in their 20s. And she's just passed away. Uh, and she was the love of his life. And so now he's left feeling, is this it? This grief, this loneliness, this emptiness. Um, and Mike and Pia used to go on these treks together, these little little trips of, you know, exploring different places. And Pia basically through a, a she basically pushes them to go on a go hit for him to go on a trek and the other two decide, you know what, we need this. We're coming to Road trip! Road trip to <laughs> Peru. And as you know, I, I go on treks every year with Copperfield, a breast cancer awareness charity. And treks are just the most amazing thing because they give us the freedom to step away from our everyday pressures and to stop, reflect. Like we can't, you can't get distracted and not think about things that you just want to push away. They come flooding in when all you can focus on is walking. Um, and they just are the most freeing thing ever. So yeah, they, they go on this trek, they stop, they breathe, they think, and they have to explore everything that they've been blocking out before. There we go. It's great. It's, I mean, it's so compelling, isn't it, as, uh, as a narrative. The triangulation of those three characters, mm. right, um, they're not extreme, but they are different enough to, to have an interesting potential collaboration. Um, how, how did you land on each one of those well, what, wanted... what, what, what did they? What, what did you need them to give you as a as a threesome? I wanted them to to have the link, which is Pia, but for also also for them to be in different at different stages of their lives. Um, you know, grief. I, I think that's something that we all feel at certain points, whether that's through losing someone or something, um, you know, or just at a point in life that life feels really overwhelming. Um, I love this. There's a part of the chapter that I write where he's literally just sat there with a velvet sofa, just getting lost in the feel of it and just that exploring that what that is what that feels like what that's doing to him um so he's just feeling lost and and people don't know what to do around him um and then to balance with that well uh, seeing people who you think would have actually he's in, you know he's in a bad place no one who loses someone is ever in a good place um but other people that you think should be in a good place i.e engaged well that's clearly you know she's clearly got to be happy and then for the mum, you know, it's all the Instagram, picture perfect, all the kids are smiling, you know, but actually what is that? And I think it's about, for each of them, scratching the surface, uh, like going beneath that and, and actually finding out what the realities are within that. Because we all know everyone's life is complex. Mm. We're never all happy all the time. There's always things going on. And, and for, the, for Vicky, for the mum, I really wanted to explore maternal mental health. And I think, it, so I first came up with the idea four years ago. And if I'd have written it then, it wouldn't be what it is now. Because I really delve into that. And I, I think sometimes there are subtle little things that she says. But I think anyone that's experienced, I think it will pack a punch uh, with her. And, and I think the more we talk about maternal ha mental health or mental health in general, um, the less alone people feel within that you know there are dark spots that we will feel and uh, and it's about knowing that they they are moments and that we can move beyond them and you've got to get stuff like this right haven't you yeah um you've got to be very careful mm -hmm. uh, and so how do you safeguard against doing saying writing something that's not helpful uh, well i finished the book with um, a list of uh, different charities actually and organizations that people can go to i think that's that's really important um it's hard, isn't it? I think it's almost like a Pandora's box sometimes, isn't it? You can open things up and, and you don't want to leave someone feeling exposed, feeling heard but exposed. Mm. Um, and I think ultimately in books like this, though, you've kind of you've got to crack it open. You've got to go to that uncomfortable place because we all feel that, you know, we feel that at times, but it's actually what happens after that. And it's, it's showing people that there is an after. Uh, and I think that, that has to be... That has to be the focus. What a beautiful way of putting it. Showing people there is an after. Mm. I love that. I love that. That's amazing. Um, all right, Giovanna, it's great to have you here again. You're Thanks. amazing. Cheers.
Thank you. All right. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. It's usually impossible to say the name of his books on the radio, but thankfully this time he's made it a bit easier. He's co-written <laughs> Will, the memoir of the one and only Will Smith, and he's here to tell us that he may be West Philadelphia born and raised, but he didn't spend all of his time in a playground. It's Mark Manson! Morning, Mark! <laughs> What's up, guys? Right, so this book, uh, I remember you talking about considering doing this with yeah. our, our mutual friend Rich Roll, um, and it, it was... No no um, walk in the park from a decision point of view, was it? No, I mean, honestly, the biggest the biggest problem was time. You know, I I, I was doing my own books. Uh, I had all these other projects going on, and I'm like, man, now you want me to spend two years with Will Smith and <laughs> download his entire life into my brain? Um, yeah, I, I don't I don't remember much of 2019, and I think it was just because I was just working like an insane person. And was there a moment, was there a dinner, was there an invitation over to Will's place that swung the decision for you in his direction? So honestly, so this is going to sound really sappy, but it's it's true. So um, the first time I flew, he flew me out to, he was filming a, a movie, and I went and spent a couple of days on set with him. And, and you know, it was going well. Like, I, I really liked him. I thought he was a cool guy. Um but in terms of like committing to this project, you know, it's like, dude, dude, you've achieved literally everything. Like, why do you need a book? And so I kind of asked him that. I said, well, why a book? Why now? And he told me, he said, you know, I've spent the first half of my life accumulating and winning and conquering and achieving everything. And he said, I want to spend the second half of my life giving everything back. And I see a book is like kind of the first step to do that. It shows the world who I actually am. And so when he said that, I'm like, all right, man, I think I'm in. Okay, that's fantastic. <laughs> um, now the, the, the story behind the um, sort of process of, of writing the book is almost as fascinating as the book itself. And I have to say the book is awesome. Um, it's so Thank candid. It's, it's candid and it's considered... Yet it's also it has this sort of um, this undercurrent of control about it. So yeah. so he he he's not is he a control freak? Is he a perfectionist? Um, he wants to wear his heart on his sleeve, but he says which sleeve shall I wear it on? And the left or the right? And so it's, he's 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 really complicated. Yeah. You know um, he's he's really fascinating. You know his dad is a pivotal um, figure in his life. Why, why wouldn't he be? For many different reasons, good and bad. And it's all in the book. His dad said things like his dad, an ex-military guy. He said things like if two people are in charge everybody dies from yeah. a from a military point of view and so will has sort of taken that with him in throughout his life yeah well we'll, we'll you know we all kind of map our parents right like we, even if we're don't intend to or don't mean to our understanding of uh you know love and family and what's right and what's wrong it, it's kind of just the default state is what our parents did and uh will's father was kind of this borderline psychotic military guy whose demand for perfection was just like off the charts and i will was kind of like held captive emotionally by that for most of his life so a lot of the incredible achievement that he he gained throughout his career um was the side effect of just being kind of caught in this trap of trying to to impress his father or please his father um so I mean it's it's one of those things that that you see a lot with in, insanely successful people. It's like on the one hand they do all these impressive things, but on the other hand it's it's incredibly emotionally toxic and unhealthy. Uh and so he's actually spent a lot of the last 10 years kind of unraveling that and unpacking himself. it yeah. yeah unraveling it and also unpacking it yeah uh, another thing his dad said and um you know i was alluding to the fact there that, that his dad has always said to him as a kid if two people are in charge in the military everybody dies so so will in in a way says okay i need to be in charge of everything i do and can you can call it control freakery uh, or, or self-preservation or, or whatever you like but that seems to have been how it's been uh, but also it's all about the wall <laughs> yeah lay another brick do you want to speak to that sure well okay so what one of the the psychotic things his father did um he decided his father owned a, a a business and had a had a shop and he decided that he wanted will and will's younger brother to to you know learn the value of of good old hard work and so he tore down an entire wall of the shop and then made will and his brother rebuild it brick by brick um 
And this is, and, and when I say rebuild it, I mean, it's like they mix the concrete themselves. They carried the wheelbarrows themselves. I mean, it's like prison labor essentially. And so <laughs> at like 10 years old, Will spent an entire year of his life building a wall brick by brick. And uh, I think t- today you would just call child protective services and, and <laughs> you know, get the kids taken away. But um, again, it, it kind of had that double edge effect of um, even though it was incredibly grueling and punishing, he took a lot of lessons of perseverance from it. And, and it, and it really defined his character in a lot of ways uh, in that he's just relentless. Like it, it's, it doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter how many bricks I have to lay. Like it'll get done eventually. Um, so it's it's kind of like that old school parenting mentality. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's quite stoic in a way. If you park all the the toxic stuff, yeah. I, I do like it because you talk about perseverance, which suggests laying another brick when things have gone wrong. But you just you but you also. You know, the, the sort of positive to that negative is you also lay another brick when things go right to keep your feet on the ground. And that's the bit I really like yes. about it. You know, you have a hit movie, okay, but Monday morning, lay another brick. Yep. You have the biggest turkey in the world. You lose your studio $150 million, uh, lay another brick. Yep. But that's, for me, I really like that. Yeah, yeah. Marriage falls apart, lay another brick. Album bombs, lay another brick. IRS comes and takes all your money, lay another brick. You know, it, it's... It's a nice, uh, you know, we opened the book with that story just because it it, it is kind of like the defining um, thread by that holds everything else together. The reason the book is called Will, I mean, other than it being his name, it's actually really funny. So when I, when I first, I came up with an outline and I kind of pitched it to him. Uh, and at this point, like, I still didn't, we still didn't know if we were going to do it or not. And so um, it was like maybe the second or third day that I was with him and I told him I had I had some ideas and I put together this outline and and I showed it to him and I you know I said like look like in my opinion kind of the your defining trait as a person like the thing that makes you one in a million is is this incredible perseverance this incredible energy and this incredible ability to kind of weather any sort of hardship or setback and just not even let it affect you um, and then I kind of, I went through the chapters. I'm like, so we're going to start at fear and then we're going to like go through this emotion and this, this emotion. And this is when you're in your twenties and you know, all this stuff. And then we're going to end on love. Cause that's kind of what you've secretly been pursuing your whole life and haven't really, wo- that, that is a beautiful outline. W- wouldn't, wasn't really able to find it. And, um, and he loved it and he was like, yeah, man. And the best part is my name's at the top. And I'm like, yeah, but it's not just your name, like that perseverance. It's also will. And man, he jumped up. He started running around. He was like, "Oh hell yeah! Oh hell yeah! That's it! Yeah, yeah!" And, and I'm just like, just sitting there. I'm like, "So, so do I have to gig? Like, is this this is good, right? Like, we love a hell yeah, don't we? We love a will. Where there's a will, there's a way." Yeah, um, Mark. Great to see you again. It's great to be here well again. Well done, pal. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. The plot of Forrest Gump is too far-fetched is a thought our next guest didn't have. His new book, Becoming Forrest, the story of his mind-boggling run across America is out now and here to turn its pages is a man that took Forrest Gump from the screen to the streets. It's Rob Poe! Hi, Rob. Hi, guys. How's it going? You are awesome. <laughs> You're just awesome. You're an awesome dude. Um, this book, I haven't read it. I've had a very busy week. I can only apologise. But I can't, I literally cannot wait to read it. This is going to be my Christmas book to read over the holidays. Becoming Forest, One Man's Epic Run Across America. Um, how did it all begin? Oh, wow. Well, literally, it began with a haircut and a barber's in Mobile because um, if you're going to do something like this, you've got to do it properly, right? <laughs> so uh, I went in there, showed him a picture of Tom Hanks and his do, and uh, he had a similar cut on the wall as well. And so after he realised that I wasn't on a hidden camera show, he was more than happy to oblige, got the cutthroat out, and then I was ready for the Marine Corps. Well, <laughs> at least it looks anyway. So, so I mean, that is a fantasist um, take on a movie, and I've done that many, many times. You know, I've watched a movie, and, uh, you know, I, I think I'm enjoying it, and then 20 years later I look back and I think, hang on a minute, that is the architecture of my life, that <laughs> film, that, that the film, this film. So, so tell us about the first time you watched the movie, um, the, the seminal effect it had on you then, and the timeline between um, um, that first, first viewing and you beginning to go and do it for real. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, I, must, I had to chose that one because uh, I was a rubbish X-wing fighter pilot for the start. Like, and uh, I, um, I've still got the copy on VHS of Forrest Gump back at ours. I can't watch it anymore. I just look at the look at the outside now. But um, that running scene is just unbelievable. And I was a, like a cross-country runner at school then. But you know, you just you don't ever think of doing something like that. I read a uh, sort of talk about like sort of how books and films can take you places. I read one chap's book. Um, a fella called Nick Baldock who ran across America and the way he just described moving at that kind of pace was unbelievable and so one day I was going to run across America life gets in the way as it does with most things I go to Australia I buy a jogging stroller which I originally planned to run across Australia with that never happened and then when I came home I talked about running across America so much a friend of mine when I brought it up for the most recent time he said are you actually going to do it this time or just talk about it <laughs> so I was like you've got me and then on I went, um, and I decided, right, what route am I going to do? And I knew about the Forrest Gump route, because if you're going to run across America, people say, what, like Forrest Gump? And, <laughs> well, yeah, like, it's the sort of thing. If you're running down the street past a pub, and especially if you've got a beard, you know, everybody's had the shout of run, Forrest, run. I don't think it matters what you look like. Um, I just tend to attract a few more shouts these days. And um, I decided, well, I'm going to give this a go because I wanted to do something like incredible for like for charity. And in the film, they ask Forrester, you're running for women's rights, the homeless, world peace, the environment and animals. And so I chose two charities, Peace Direct and the World Wildlife Fund, who tick all of them five boxes. But it was all eventually coming down to one thing. Just like Forrest, I was a bit of a mom, mama's boy and um, my mum wasn't around, sort of even when I thought of the idea... But uh, she'd give me a little bit of a philosophical sort of zenith, uh, I, would, I, would, I would call it, you know, which is to do one thing in my life that made a difference. I never knew what that was going to be. And then suddenly, just like one of those little games where you roll the marbles into the little holes and they all go in at one time, I suddenly found myself on a, uh, on a plane going it, to uh, so, so it all fell into place. Was it a hell yeah? Was there any doubt in your mind? Yeah, there was. There was but, but, like, so, <laughs> Certainly, the only person who ever thought I would do the whole thing was my girlfriend and now wife, Nadine. Um, I just wanted to go across America once, from Mobile to Santa Monica, where, of course, Forrest finishes as an athletic thing. But then to try and do the thing for charity, once I turned around at Santa Monica, it was all about, let's just go how far... I could physically make, you know, sort of, end, and financially because I wasn't sponsored. It was like sort of house deposit there, house deposit gone. Uh, so that was a moment of doubt. Um, but then I figured, hey, I know there's Monument Valley and I know there's these waypoints, but Forrest never intended to end up in the middle of nowhere. Um, I just thought if I get there, fantastic. But whatever I get to, I hope people would like respect the fact that I gave it everything. And, um, I did my best to you do were, that. You absolutely did. <laughs> now, Vassos has interviewed you before. You know each other very well. Uh, Vassos, can you sort of dip into the highlights of maybe a previous conversation so we can enjoy those now? Well, what people might not know about Rob, and might be surprised to hear about Rob, given his the Liverpool twang to his accent, <laughs> is that Rob... Quali- this is right, isn't it? Rob qualified to run the marathon at the Rio Olympics for Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Waltzing Matilda all the way, man. <laughs> Tell us a bit about that. Uh, it was a very strange turn event. I was living in Australia for three years and I originally thought I'll join a football team when I got there to get some mates, but then I realised like sort of a mouthy scouser whose best football days were behind them. I was probably going to end up more in a hospital wing than, than uh, in the AFL uh, Cup final. So I uh, joined an athletics club, uh, rekindled my love for running quickly and, uh, yeah, qualified to run for Victoria. I had a really su- surreal moment on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I was coming about eighth in the Sydney Marathon and I'd been dropped by a lead pack and I dropped everyone else and it felt like I was the only person on Sydney Harbour Bridge. It was like 28 days later. I crossed the line in 10th <laughs> and uh, the head coach, Tim Crosby, goes, congratulations, Rob, you're Australian champion. And I'm like, Tim, mate, you know I'm like Liverpool, England, not Liverpool, New South Wales, right? And he goes, doesn't matter, mate, you've been here long enough. And I get a phone call later that day <laughs> saying it was a, an IAAF gold race. And did I know what that meant? And I said, yeah, it's on telly. And he goes, now, mate, if you can 10th in an IAAF gold race, you've qualified for the Olympics, so you qualified for Rio. Congratulations. 
And um, I was just like, what? So I'm going to Rio. And he said, no, no, no. Basically, they had a few other people who weren't at the race that day, which is probably why I came 10th and first Australian. Um, and if they get the times, they'll go. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, four of the guys did. And I didn't uh, know their address to leave roller skates outside the front door. So I'm going to get one of those Olympic tattoos. But after the third ring, just have it dot, dot, dot into nothing. Love it. <laughs> what a tale. Uh, the London, so from the Sydney Marathon to the London Marathon, I, lo- I love this. So Rob runs the London Marathon just before he finishes. That you sort of pop back, you, the, you know, the doors of your, the birth of your first child, and then you run the London Marathon, and you, you do it really well because you're a, a wonderful runner, and you do it dressed as Forrest Gump. And then in the finish area, because there aren't that many people who finished before Rob, there's Elliot Kipchoge and there's Mo Farah, and Mo comes up to Rob, <laughs> and what does Mo say? <laughs> Can I take a selfie? <laughs> I love it. (laughs) Rob, it is a real honour and a pleasure to meet you. You too, guys. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. From hit podcasts to selling out arenas across the UK, our next guest can do it all and then some. He's co-hosting Children in Need tonight from 7pm on BBC One, so get ready to dig deep and help those in need as we talk to the comedy whirlwind that is the absolutely lovely Chris Ramsey. Good morning, Christopher. Hello, morning. How are you? Hello, hello. Come in, Ramsey. Yeah, we're very well. How are you doing? I'm great, thank you. You're live on tour. Uh, the tour is back. Um, what are you doing? Where might you be doing that? Oh, so me and Rosie, my uh, my lovely wife, are touring the podcast, um, and we started again on Monday in Manchester. Well, that's sold out. But the next week we hit the O2 um, for the for the podcast show, which is it's just mind bending. Like basically, we unofficially became the biggest live podcast ever when we did Newcastle Arena mm-hmm. uh, in September. Then we unofficially beat that record in Wembley Arena when we sold out Wembley Arena to do it and now we're going to beat that again when we sell out the O2 next in next week it's it's mind bending and we're going to hopefully get the little Guinness Book Records guy there with his little clicker and his little clipboard and hopefully get it official so yeah we're two other arenas of the country all over December doing the podcast to our tickets on sale I love it I love it sure. and because you're because you're banter with your wife it's not that precise um, it is an art form there's no question about it how and you, dare no, you no but no no <laughs> but it isn't and it's, it's well it seems look you're so good at what you do how, how do I know uh, oh, what do I know? What's planned and what's not planned? But is it more rock and roll from a live performance point of view, as opposed to uh, you know you doing your stand up and you know yeah. where your beginning and your middle and your end is? So is there more of a is there more of a leap of faith for both you and the people coming to see you? Well, in all honesty, right, we did the the first few dates uh, of the the first leg of the podcast tour was before my stand up tour started. My stand up tour has essentially been sandwiched in between the two, right. So we did these first dates in September and it was like a concert. The lights go down and the people in the room lose their minds. Like they start screaming like Justin Bieber's about to come on. It's amazing. And then, dare I say it, I went on my stand-up tour and I was a little bit disappointed. Because, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, like the lights are, I mean, like, you know, I'm in like Hammersmith Apollo and the lights are going down and I can just hear people putting their phones on silent and clearing their throats. And I'm like, oh, come on, man. Like it was... It was. I said on the podcast, I was like, can you all put a bit of effort in, please? Because yeah. I'm depressed backstage waiting for it to go on. See, that's but, um, really interesting because you do have two entirely different crowds, don't you? Yeah, it's a stand-up. It's very much they kind of sit and they settle in and they, and they listen to the stories I'm about to tell them. But the, the podcast show, it's, it is so fun. Like, Rosie asked us at one point during the podcast tour, the first lecture, said, what do you enjoy more, your stand-up or the podcast tour? And I was opening the second bottle of wine for the night and I was like, guess... Guess yeah. which one I enjoy more. I'm literally on my second bottle of wine. Like, it's so good. It's so fun. The crowd are part of it. Um, the second half of the show is different every night because Rosie sources a section, what we call questions from the public, and we get questions from people. And she sources them every for every show, and I don't know about them. So I sit there, glass of wine in hand, and going completely cold on the story she's about to tell me, and I react with the crowd. It's It's just so fun, and it's so different to stand up and it's so unique and it's brilliant and all credit to my wife for doing most of the legwork if I'm honest with you <laughs> yeah and, and does it ever not work out in such a such a such a sort of um um loose almost fearless or fearful I'm sure it could be one or the other and sometimes both at the same time format D- does, does it ever not work out or can you always well, bring it around to a laugh in the end personally um I, I, my favorite things to ever do is off the cuff right. I've I, as a stand-up for years I've wanted to tour a show that had no 
no structure, nothing, just where you chat to the crowd for an hour and a half. Right. But you can't, you can't sort of rely on every crowd to do that. You can do it in some crowds, but some places they don't want to do that. They just want to listen. But the podcast tour has proved that that is possible with the right kind of crowd. And can I turn it around every time? It's not really me. It's the audience and the stuff they're sending in. However, one thing that did backfire was we get a what's your beef. So me and Rosie do a section. I know. I've heard, I've heard it. I love it. Yes, of course. And we slag each other off. But we got the crowds <laughs> to do it. So each night, each night, wherever the venue is, it'll be, you know, what's your beef Wembley? What's your beef O2? And we've got them that they've specifically sent in on a survey email that we've got. And they send them in and they put their names to it. But then as soon as we read it out, they bottle it. And we go, where are you? You know, Tim and Diane, where are you? And it's just silence. And you can see people's heads ducking down. They're trying to crawl for the door. They won't admit it because when they're on the email, they're all, you know, they're all full of full of hell and thinking, yeah, I'm going to slag them off for this. But in the room, they all bottle it. But, you know, we, we pull it around. OK, uh, how are you feeling about tonight? Are you nervous or are you just going to dive in there and enjoy it? Do you know what it is? Do you know what the most nervous part is of doing children? Because it's my second year now. Um, it's... it's um, hoping that you can actually after one of the appeal videos comes on hoping that you can actually read out the phone number and deliver it down the camera it is so emotional yeah. and so emotive i had to do some voiceover the other day and i got sent some of the clips and i had to take a break i was like i, I can't even just reading them out after i knew i'd seen the video obviously i don't want to give anything away um because you know the not only it's you know it's not a whole night of sadness and, and drama there's some incredibly funny stuff and some lovely heartwarming moments but it's all for a good cause, of, of, as you know, but oh my gosh, sometimes it just really gets to us, and especially being a father myself now, mm. like twice, I've got two kids now, and you know, yourself, I, I mean, I can't watch a movie where the kid goes missing or anything. It's, it's a game so changer, emotional. isn't it? It's so different. It's, it, it's... You just change who you are, yeah, and it, it, that's the most nervous part for me, sometimes going, right, I've got to, I've got to deliver this line off this, so I'm going to have to not watch the last 10 seconds of this video, because otherwise I'm just going to be a bubbling mess on the telly, and they're not going to know how to text in. Business. It's lovely to talk to you. You are absolutely flying high and you deserve every single one of those air miles, pal. So, Chris Ramsey there. Again. Great to see you. Cheers, pal. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Shaken or stirred, our next guest always hits the spot. His new book, Home Cocktail Bible, is out next month. So if you want to know all about monkey gland, silk stocking or eternal gong, but don't want them showing up on your browser history, buy his book instead. <laughs> it's the always wonderful Ollie Smith. <laughs> Yeah, great names. I mean, thank you. Good morning. Uh, what's the most difficult? Good morning, Ollie. Uh, what's the most difficult coming up with the uh, actual recipes? Or, or I mean, the most important thing I would imagine are the names. Yeah, yeah, I love coming up with the names and the recipes. You know, they they kind of fall into place. You know, and you make them and create them and have a laugh with them. But the names sometimes they just fall from the sky, Chris. Eternal Gong. Who wouldn't want to taste that? <laughs> I think from memory that's got like pheno in it. It's got a bit of white port in it, some sake. I what, mean, it what is. What about this one? What about this oh, one? Oh, God. On page 142, Corpse Reviver. Yeah, that's definitely a good one. I think the, the, the Corpse Reviver, I mean, it is. there's a lot of booze in there. It's not the sort of thing you'd be wanting to drink at this I time. I could morning. have done with that a couple of weeks ago, let me tell yeah, you. Yeah, that's about a bet. The Disco Dancing Mermaid. Oh, I love the colour of that. Azure as the eyes of a Disco Dancing Mermaid with a fizz. Oh, yes. Pray, pray tell what animals might we find in the Baltimore Zoo. The Baltimore Zoo, you'd find all the animals, Chris. <laughs> You'd find the bears, the wolves, you'd find the lions. The Alabama slumber. Oh, yes. Come on, yeah, baby. I love that. I love that. Um, Have you got a favourite cocktail, Chris? Is there one that you go to? Well, I, I mean, it doesn't really count. I love a really, a, an excellent Bloody Mary, but it's more of a long yes. drink. I suppose that's waiting to be invented, the Bloody Mary cocktail. Well, you're right. And I've actually, I've got one in the book with tequila. There's yeah. a Bloody Maria that's a sort of riff on that. So, yeah, give that one a go. See how you go. But if, you, if you go to, the, I think it's the sailing club in Santa Barbara. Yeah. I went there once on a road trip, on my own, actually. And I was driving up to San Francisco from um, from Venice Beach. And I stopped off there. And they do a Bloody Mary shot with an oyster in the shot glass. Oh, I love that. Is that is that a thing? Yeah, that's totally a thing. That's got full of the seaside. It's full of salt. It's charged with, basically, you get the protein hit as well. That is a revitalizer for every morning of the week in my view uh, I quite I uh, love the idea of a pisco sour but a pisco yes. disco sour yeah, yes I own, I own I've had one. several pisco naps let me tell you yeah, I bet as opposed to disco naps I, I just think pisco is a, it's a bright clear spirit from South America Peru and Chile and it's one of those ones that you know if you like a bit of gin you like a bit of tequila you're going to love pisco and mysteriously 
uh, quite a while ago now, I bought the website and the domain name piscodisco.com, but I don't know what to do with it. I know. <laughs> I know. What should we do with I it? I have been there many times. <laughs> we can I discuss our, the domain uh, names and the mm. list of those that we are still renting for £179 a year, and we don't know what we're going to do with them. Probably what are nothing. We do? Yeah. Um, you know, I've asked you this before, but it's lots of people tuning in for the first time every week, which is great, and um, people listening for longer and, and more often. So thank you, everyone, for that. There's so much cocktail joy to be had in any of your books, especially this brand new one, Home, the Home Cocktail Bible. Um, might this be the Old Testament, the New Testament, or, or, or the whole story in one? Well, I wish it was just the Old Testament so I can write the New Testament <laughs> for next Christmas, Chris. But I think it is basically, it's a one-stop shop for every cocktail you could ever wish for. And yeah. I've laid it out by spirit. Mm. And, and it's supposed to be simple and fun and effective. So if you've got some gin in the, in the cupboard, if you've got some vodka, you go to that part of the book and you build. And I think if people are listening thinking, oh, yeah, I can't really be bothered with making it. It's just about having fun. You do not need any skills. I've done all the invigoration in the recipes, simplicity, accessibility and love. That's all what right. it's all about. So here's my question, the one I yeah, always ask you. OK, how do we how do we how do we pace ourselves for a cocktail mm. evening? Because they are so beautiful. And when they're made with your recipes, you can't really taste the booze. Yes. Um, you know, well, you can, but it's it's it's, you know, it's not more. It's more complimentary than confrontational. But before we know it, we're usually on the floor. Oh, yeah, it's true. We need, we need to be scraped up by our kids to get us to bed. I mean, <laughs> Yes. I, th I think the main thing is one-on-one-off. -on -one -off. Have an alcoholic drink, drink some water. Mm. It's pretty simple. But, you know, I mean, you've got good <laughs> non-alcoholic options. I've got a ginger switchel over here, if anyone fancies, which is basically apple cider vinegar, a bit of ginger, a bit of honey and a bit of spice. That can really pep up your palate and get you going. So I think keep yourself hydrated. I know it's a bit dull, but do one-on-one-off. It, on -one -off. Work, it works. It works a charm. The morning after the mm. cocktail um, craziness the night before... Yeah. Because this is what you do for a living. You can't, yes. you can't be too much off piece, can you? No, I have to You've got to, to come on shows like this, yes. and you go on Sunday brunch, and yes. different things like that. Yeah, and... I think keep, keeping fit is a big one. You know, I've kind of, uh, I've been fit and then not so fit, but I'm definitely better when I'm back with my PT, back running, feeling good. And I think if you have had a heavy night, you know, ease into it the next day. But there really is nothing better than getting out there into the breeze and having a bit of a jog. Or my lovely assistant Ellie will say, just jump into the sea. But I think she says that to me anyway. It's okay. She lives in Cornwall, she can do that. Um, Ollie, I love you. Um, thank you for not getting us drunk on the air, but we did the, just just the sense of mm. you being in the building made us a little bit tipsy earlier on. It was for Ollie, wasn't it? Was <laughs> it the euphoria, yes. euphoria of No Time to Die being available on, on Sky Store? Was it, it was the, the genius of Tom mix. Walker? Was it our lovely guests here today? Uh, was the fact that Rachel and I are back for the first Friday in five weeks? Whoa! Um, but I think it's pretty much the fact you're around. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. I mean, I love being around you guys. I'm looking forward to Carfest next year greatly. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Thank you so much for listening to this, the podcast of the Virgin Radio Breakfast Show. Don't forget you can subscribe and get it every week from wherever you get your podcast and you will never miss the weekly roundup of all the best bits from our Virgin Radio Breakfast Show with Sky.